Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Ron Corps podcast. This episode, we welcome Dr. John Hayes, a history professor at Augusta University, an all-around super-based person since they decided to come on our podcast. Um, John received his bachelor's in philosophy and religious studies at Wake Forest University in 95, a master's in theological studies from Duke in 2000, and a PhD in history from UGA in 2007. In 2017, John released their first book, Hard Hard Religion, Interracial Faith in the Poor South, which provides an analysis of working class folk Christianity in the New South. Recently, John has served as a member of the Mayor's Confederate Monument and Names Task Force. We welcome John and also Andy, if there's anything you wanted to add. I guess the only thing I would add to that is that 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 task force is not uh, for the preservation of the monument, but the <laughs> removal of the monument. Very <laughs> important <laughs> note. <laughs> know that. Uh, and on that note, uh, Dr. Hayes, is there anything you want to add? No, that's intro? great. Thanks very much for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on sure. the show. Um, today, our subject is uh, broad and ill-defined and we're going to try to carve out this block of wood as we go along but generally speaking uh what we brought you here to talk about today is the south um especially especially regarding the south's history of uh revolutionary potential socialist labor organizing so on and so forth and kind of where it's been where it's gone and where it's at now. And uh, one of the lenses that we wanted to approach this from was, well, the reconstruction era uh, was very progressive um, for its time. And for, it, it, it was, you know, progressive compared to decades and decades and hundreds of years on since then, up until maybe the uh, civil rights era. Um, but even now, compared to the civil rights era, it seems like the politics of our time is regressive. And so we just want, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the subject. I don't, I don't know how to turn this into a question, but <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we want to know, I mean, I mean, really what I'm looking for, at least, and, I, and he can speak for himself, I'm looking for uh, strategic um, little nuggets to mine off of whatever you have to say. I'm really looking for like, what is the strategy that would work? Why did former strategies mm -hmm. stop working when it comes to organizing? Uh, you know, like, like what were the failures of even the the or the labor movement of the turn of the century and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So let's hop on with Reconstruction, and I think the most succinct way to put it would be. If you're thinking about the whole scope of American history, U.S. history, the first place in the USA where um, black people have voting rights and are elected to really important statewide and even federal offices is in the South. And so um, if that's sort of a litmus test of um, how, you know, possibilities of radical politics, the first place you really see that debut um, is in the Southern states during Reconstruction. And Reconstruction is one of those periods in history that I call a moment of possibility. And by that, I, I mean a moment where 
the story really could have gone in very, very different directions. And, and obviously, like anyone that lives in, in, you know, lives in time, like all of us do, we live in a present moment. We make decisions about where to go from here, that kind of thing. But where we're going to go is, is not nearly as open as, say, high school graduation speeches tell us. I mean, <laughs> probably we're going to choose two out of three things, this kind of thing, as opposed to just your, your future's unwritten, all this. And so with a moment of possibility, which is not every moment in history, the story really can go in radically different directions. And Reconstruction represents one of those moments in U.S. history and in Southern history. And things that you would not think could happen after over two centuries of, of racial slavery actually did happen. You're like, there's no way that could happen. Well, well, it actually did. And um, so it's this very right moment with, a, with tremendous potential. And then to, to, to your second question, <clears throat> The most basic thing with Reconstruction is just um, violence that ultimately is, is violence with impunity. And, um, you know, what we would today, well, the Department of Justice, today's Department of Justice, it is a Reconstruction creation. And it's, it's not, not its only task, but one of its first tasks during its creation was to um, crack down on and trying to dismantle the Ku Klux Klan, which arose as the initial uh, anti-Reconstruction terrorist organization. Um, and, and the Department of Justice is actually really serious about this. Functionally, the Klan ceased to exist by, by the early 1870s. But uh, new groups arose. There was a group just across the river from us here in Augusta um, called the Red Shirts that was very powerful in South Carolina. And they carried out violence um, and terrorism. And by that, I mean acts of violence that create a climate of fear. So, you know, you don't have to kill all of your opponents. You just scare all of your opponents and make it dangerous to vote, make it dangerous to run for office. Um, but if that, if that can be done with impunity, and the people carrying that out don't face consequences, then they can, they can carry the day. And so lowercase d, democratic electoral politics can be um, overridden by the use of force. In this case, we're talking about extreme violence. So that's, with, with Reconstruction, um, you know, the, the basic plot line is ultimately it was overthrown. It was overthrown through violence that, that went unpunished. Some of the key architects of that went on to be elected governor, be elected U.S. senator, have place names, have, have places named after them. And um, that also sends a message for, for people in the future. If, if they can get away with it, then we know that we could too. Um, I mean, we can dwell on maybe we can dwell on Reconstruction a little bit more before moving to 20th century labor movements, um, who also face tr tremendous oh. violence against them. In this case, it's typically by their employers. Um, but but we can dwell on Reconstruction for a bit. Yeah, well, with what you've said about it so far, um, it kind of reminds me of this thesis that I hear repeated a lot in leftist circles about how fascism is kind of a reaction to the failure of the left to 
like complete its project. Um, one of the like spitting image examples would be like Weimar Germany and you know Rosa Luxemburg and all that era leading eventually to the Nazis. Um, and I it kind of it kind of I kind of sense a bit of a parallel in the Reconstruction era, like you're suggesting that the things that were going on in Reconstruction, especially in the South, was further ahead than anywhere else, at least in the North, right? And then in reaction to that, right, the reactionaries came in and uh, wound the Mm -hmm. clock backwards, so to speak. Is that a, that's a fair parallel to draw? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's a historical... I don't know if it's a rule, but it's certainly a pattern is you can, you can judge the um, radical potential of something by the reactionary violence directed against it. So when people in power feel that, okay, wait a second, we, we could, we could really lose this. That's, that's when you, which is, which is, you know, not, not every day. Um, That's when you see, Instances of reactionary violence, and yeah, Reconstruction is a classic example of that. <clears throat> there's a um, there's a wonderful yeah. quote from um, a South Carolina, you know, member of the white planter elite. He's um, one of the many members of that elite that that lived in Edgefield County, just across the river from us here, and. He was South Carolina's governor when South Carolina seceded from the USA. Um, and early in Reconstruction, he's just surveying the scene around him. And he says, you know, all society stands now like a cone on its apex. Like the least, um, you know, shaking and the whole thing could come crashing down. He's saying that as an anxious member of the elite. But that speaks to just how radical the potential of reconstruction was um which again generates this this mobilized and reactionary uh violent reprisal against it but in the case of reconstruction um it also i mean and this will play a role in the labor movement in the 1930s and kind of where it went from the 1930s is you know ultimately will there be um, you know, the basic rule of law, will there be protection of, you know, basic protection of life or not? Um, and, the, you know, the verdict in Reconstruction is actually, no, ultimately federal resources will not protect life. Um, but, you know, the 14th Amendment remains on the books and, you know, equal protection, um, everyone's a citizen, the ideals are still there. Those never get defeated, but the commitment to actually enforcing them and, and making that more than a letter goes really almost a century um, before it has real teeth in it again. Gee, do you want to ask anything else about Reconstruction? Um, well, this isn't really a question to ask, just a statement, just to kind of like stuff because i mean for for me um 
and I, I don't know if I talk about this specifically on the podcast. It's always hard for me to keep track if, if it's just something I told a friend or told Andy off the podcast or on. But for me, when I was a kid, I really didn't understand like why people like when when people and I'm not just talking about poor people, black people, marginalized people, if they have some leverage, like why would they stop fighting? I, I didn't understand when I was a kid. So because like with my my grandmother was born in 1940 and I I was like, oh, Nana, did you do like to participate in uh, Jim Crow protests and stuff because she had moved to Atlanta when she was about, I don't know, 17 or 18. And she was like, heck no. Of course I didn't. Mm -hmm. I was scared. And I was so mad. Like when I was like, eight or nine, I was so mad. I was like, what the heck? Like, why? Like, but then once I grew up a little bit and when I was doing stuff and I'm organizing myself, I do, you know, that's the main thing I do. I was like, mm -hmm. it is scary. Um, and I can't imagine how scary it must have been for people who, maybe people who were born into slavery or their parents were born into slavery. They were free. They got some freedom. Stuff started going their way. And then there's like these groups that pop up to come and right. scare them. And something that you said, John, was like the, the, the fact that there's violence and then you don't have to, again, you don't have to kill all your opponents, but it's like just that violence inciting fear and that fear having no no consequences it really scares people because i and we'll talk about it again soon but like you know the in the future of like how things are now i know i have a question on that but i i just really i i mean it can't be understated how scary it must have been to like you're especially i um like just again like having like a taste of some type of freedom or some semblance of getting closer to equality again whether black poor marginalized in any way in united states and then kind of being told like okay you're asking for too much <laughs> don't you do anything about it and then the you know people that you you know vote for or whatever are not really helping to protect you um i just wanted to add that yeah, no absolutely that absolutely um yeah j fear is just so basic to uh, um maintaining the social order and um yeah i mean again t terrorism is not is not too strong a word to use because it's it's um you know violence intended to create a climate of fear you don't you don't destroy all your opponents by killing all them you just you just scare people and people are like well would i rather live or have voting rights like I, you know what i just i just want to live and um yeah, it's it's just pervasive. I mean, and it it um, yeah. I mean, for her coming of age in the in the nineteen forties, um, she she wouldn't have had to st have studied the history of Reconstruction uh, to to um, participate in the fear that that the overthrow of Reconstruction generated. It was just an everyday thing um, that carries in. You know, I mean, alive and well in the Jim Crow era. I think one other thing I, I just want to add. We we're talking earlier about Free State of Jones, an excellent movie that's well, well worth seeing. And, and yes, most of it is, is entirely true. Um, but the latter part of that, that's the only part where I have, have objections when they depict Reconstruction there. And in actuality, you know, Newton Knight, the, the protagonist, the Matthew McConaughey character, I mean, he's elected to local office in Reconstruction. So here, here's someone that rebelled against the Confederacy from within and um, and then is elected um, by the people of Jones County, which again left the Confederacy and returned. You know, um, so he's elected office, and, and as as Free State of Jones depicts it, it's as if Reconstruction never even got off the ground. It's it's like the old 
the old guard is is already gaming the system and and uh there's no real power for for the people who were part of the you know the, the rebellion of the free state of jones in actuality there was considerable power um and again because of the considerable power that's why you see the uh, a, a very anxious former elite mobilizing to to destroy it um to just take one one final example on reconstruction before we move on so just across the river from us here in augusta if you go down to the Riverwalk, and you're down at uh, where the railroad line comes across, which would be on, on 6th Street. Um, you know, if you're, anytime you're standing there, if a train comes by, it's, it's impossible to miss. Um, so if you're looking just across the river there, now there's a golf community and like directly across the river from, from the railroad line is just sort of bottomland sort of thicket. But that was the site of a town called Hamburg, it was a very important town for South Carolina and Georgia and even nationally. And in Reconstruction, the town was had a black majority population, but um, you know it was it was racially it was a racially mixed town, but black majority population. And many of the local office holders uh, were black men who were veterans of the Union Army, and so in some cases they had been enslaved, had successfully escaped their enslavement joined the Union Army, fought for the USA, which is an empowering thing, and, um, and now we're holding office in, in post-Civil War Hamburg. And um, starting on July, July 4th, 1876, I mean, just think about the symbolism of that, but like it's, this really does happen. So here it is, the nation's centennial. Um, these white men from Edgefield County start an altercation with uh, some of the, the black men who were officials in the town. And then white men start mobilizing and four days later um, attack a black militia company, which would be akin to like the sheriff's department nowadays, essentially, and carry out a, a racial massacre, which again, the, the violence sends a message of, we're gonna do this to you, you should be scared. The US Senate investigates and they're like three volumes of testimony. I mean, I, I think these are digitized, um, but I mean, it's, it's a robust Senate investigation. A lot of testimony about what exactly happened, um, the terrorism, the, the um, you know, overriding of, of lowercase d democracy. Ultimately, nothing comes of it. So like the, the, the uh, federal government moves on and they don't they don't do anything, but just if pause on that for a second, and let's just say that um, the Department of Justice, based on all that test testimony gathered by the Senate committee, engaged in prosecutions of redshirt leaders, we would be living. I mean, the story could have gone very very differently, but the failure of elected officials to carry out a basic thing, equal protection under the law makes a mockery of, of the whole system. So basically a, a violent mob can overthrow legitimately elected government. And in, in this case, in a, in a town and the highest, the, you know, the highest government gives the stamp of approval by its inaction. So that sends a long message for, for decades and decades to come that, um, this kind of thing is sanctioned and we're just going to kind of move on. So 
that, that's um, it, let me just say also I don't know when this podcast will debut but um, this July 8th so 2022 is the first ever commemoration of the Hamburg massacre it's it's on the exact day uh, in 1876 and so if, if those listening are, are interested in this this would be in the um, Carsville community, which is now part of, so Hamburg moved up the river. There was a flood, it moved up the river. I mean, sorry, up the bluff, not up the river. Away from the river, up the bluff. This is basically where uh, US-1 uh, crosses, I guess, US-25. There's a community in there called Carsville, and that's where the Hamburg commemoration will be. But uh, very important event. But again, that sends them, you know, it's, it's got everything mixed together just in that single event. Wow. Uh, we're, we're just now joined by uh, our friend of ours, fellow organizer, Greg. I don't know if Greg wants to uh, be on the podcast, have his voice on here, but he is now in the chat. Okay. Okay. Well, in that case, oh, hold on. I got to go. Okay, well, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, but if you're laughing, it's going right. to come back. It's going to look really bad. You edit this, and then it's just me laughing. <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, but no, I think this is super interesting because I, for one, did not know about the Hamburg uh, massacre, and also I'm definitely going to be there at that, at the, like, kind of commemoration yeah, good, of, of it. That sounds, that sounds really interesting. I, I, I mean, this is this is a part of fiction. I don't know if it was based on anything, but there's a um, there's a Toni Morrison novel. Um, which one is it? Uh, it's uh, Sula, and it's a very it's really good. It's like she goes through lots of different perspectives of the characters. But the main point is, I think where usually where the main part of it takes place is like this town that's at the mm -hmm. bottom of a hill, and apparently it used to be a town that was pretty prosperous for like black people but at some point like the black people got pushed to the bottom of the hill and the white people on the top of the hill on the other side and i don't know the imagery of that kind of remind me of that but yeah it's just I, I don't know it's i mean we don't have to i don't know if this is a good segue or not but one thing i i think about especially when we keep talking about like violence kind of just scaring people enough to stomp out any ideas of you know mm -hmm. things to come i do you i mean i don't even know if this is a good question or not but it's just um, I'm thinking that like right now, like people who are maybe reactionary and very violent or even terrorist groups, they don't really see folks as a threat now. Like I think the the the, the part of like Reconstruction era, it was like we they became violent because they did right. see a threat. They saw like people were trying to get rights and stuff. And I think what's what's different about what's going on in our climate now is that people are violent. But they don't necessarily even have to be violent because people like, I, and I wouldn't say on the left, but just anywhere that's to the left of fascism is like, they're kind of like, I don't think we're as a society complicit. I think a lot of people are vocal. A lot of people are like, there's a lot more protests and things going on nowadays, but I don't, I think they don't really take people who are protesting or out there trying to change things to organize even seriously. They're like, I'm not even, and I don't know if that's because they're more organized, if they're like more violent, do they feel like there's more of them? And I want to know your thoughts on that of like our kind of modern day of like these, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I can't really compare terrorist group to terrorist group in the South, right? But like for like these modern day groups that we have popping up, for example, um, I know that like at 
different organizations down, not organizations, different events down here in Augusta, whether that's a protest or a rally for something, i.e. getting rid of a Confederate monument or um, talking about Roe v. Wade and um, reproductive rights or um, even like pride events. There's usually protesters mm -hmm. there, like anti-protesters to the, to the exact same thing. So I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on like kind of the modern day, uh, I shouldn't say equivalent, but the modern day kind of something to that. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, you, you like, you know, you hear, you hear the phrase terrorist groups. And if you look at like the Southern Poverty Law Center and their, their categorization of which, what groups are terrorist groups, um, the, the, the connotation can be that these are kind of fringe and, and, and yes, they're, that doesn't at all mean they're not dangerous. Like, yes, they're, da they're dangerous. I mean, people are, um, the, the people that make them up are willing to use violence to, um, you know, see that their vision is maintained. But, yeah, but it has this connotation that they're kind of these, these, these sort of fringe groups, um, maybe people that don't have a lot of social status, that kind of thing. And uh, certainly like in our own time, like groups like that can exist, no, no doubt. But I think that if we, again, I, I won't keep talking about reconstruction, but the equivalent in reconstruction, it would be like, like if we're thinking about the Klan or other groups like the Red Shirts, um, the White League, groups like that of the reconstruction era, they would be the equivalent in our own terms, like today, of a um, anti-voting rights, anti-democratic terrorist group that was organized and planned by members of the Augusta Country Club and, and well-financed and bankrolled, highly organized, but, but, but had the, you know, and, and had regular meetings in the you know, clubhouse of the Augusta Country Club, this kind of thing. Um, so, you know, putting that all together, um, looking at our own time, I think if you're looking at just sort of movements of, or well, organizations that represent um, like truly significant, a truly significant threat to the existing order, I, I don't think they're, I mean, for, for different reasons. I don't see them as particularly powerful, so they, they don't constitute much of a threat. So the people that really hold the power, um, they don't need to resort to terrorism, again, like, like the elite did in the Reconstruction era or some other moments in our history. They don't need to resort to that because the, um, the existing structures are, are, are not really threatened. Um, again, that's not to say that, you know, over here, there may be a few people who feel like, you know, our, you know, our monument in Augusta is threatened. We've got, we got to mobilize. I mean, they, they, they may be, but, but um, yeah, I, I don't think they're, I'm not seeing really significant organizations threatening the basic structures of power today. In the in the in analogous to what you'd have in Reconstruction or some other moments in our more recent history, um, you know, this past weekend, I think he y'all met him briefly at the table at the Juneteenth Parade and Festival. I'm part of the 1970 Augusta Riot Committee, 
and we brought a very prominent activist from 1970 to, to town for the weekend, this past weekend in Augusta. And so in, in 1970, he was a student at Payne College, which had a very, very um, important student movement. And students were highly radicalized, and they did a lot of stuff in the community. Um, they were very in touch with the, the concerns of the community and, and yeah, were highly organized and very effective. And uh, one of the things he said in, in the different talks over the weekend was, consistency is the criterion to be taken seriously and to be consistent you have to be very well organized so you, you you know you keep at it you're focused on this and you have continuity over time but if if a protest is episodic or you know by the next month the news cycles moved on the people and what they care about have moved on then you know, those in power don't feel threatened. They're like, okay, which, you know, let people blow off their steam. They're not organized. It's all good, you know. And, and um, so I think that speaks to, to today is, uh, yeah, I'm just not thinking, just like thinking about the American landscape, I'm not thinking of, sig I mean, organizations that I think are, are really well, well oiled. That, that constitute um, a consistent threat to power. I think that, that's, that would be my... That, that kind of reminds me of something that, I'm going to butcher this, this guy's name, Asan, Asante Allison right. uh, said, he was, he was a former Black Panther who joined the Black Liberation Army. Um, and then after that era, he... Uh, became an anarchist, um, and at some point he flew down to the Zapatistas, um, and he was hanging out with them, kind of uh, cross-pollinating ideas and just getting a little bit of, uh, you know, on the ground learning from them kind of thing. And he said that he asked one of the veterans, um, as he put it, it was someone that, that seemed like they were a little veteran, uh, what was it like in the beginning? whenever y'all were first trying to organize this and the veteran said, you know, people were scared. This, this kind of like echoes mm -hmm. back to what y'all were saying about like fear earlier. He says, um, yeah, people were scared and they, they were afraid they didn't want to organize because uh, it, was, it was scary, but we, we were persistent. Um, and we, we basically over time, they began to trust us. Uh, because our presence, like, not, we weren't going away. We we showed that we like really cared about improving mm -hmm. their lives, and eventually, people it, that helped people get involved. Yeah, yeah, and I think that I mean, and that speaks to um, I think the other thing, and this may be part of the the issue in the U.S. T t today. I think the other thing that 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 kind of consistently uh, sustains the the status quo is resignation. So, I mean, we've touched on fear, and I think the other thing is resignation. And so people um, experience injustice, don't feel empowered, um, but if they, if they can't imagine that it could ever be different, you know, it doesn't mean they're happy. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they, there may be, may be a lot of inner anguish, but they just sort of are defeated by resignation. By, by the, you know, the, there's, there's not a hope that we could actually, like, change this. Um, 
And so I think, you know, to, to that example, a group that believe, you know, a small focus group that believes that, hey, we, we can actually change this. It doesn't have to be this way. It has to persuade other people that that's actually the case, right? It has to raise uh, the possibility of hope to, to get people out of resignation. And I think, you know, I mean, uh, there, there are a lot of things one could say about our society, but I mean, we're a huge country and, uh, you know, 330 million people, it's, that can seem just sort of daunting. And, and that can, I think, feed a feeling of how could I possibly change anything? Um, whereas I think that the, the closer get, things get to home, I think the, more, the higher the possibility of feeling empowered is, that, that you could actually, um, you can change things. It doesn't have to be this way. But in a, yeah, I mean, it's just, it gets harder when, when the, it, it can seem so large and kind of intractable. Okay, so there's two kind of uh, directions that I still have in mind to go from here. Um, one of them was the next step along the uh, historical journey path, uh, getting into like the kind of like Haymarket era, you know, the kind of like the post-Reconstruction uh, labor movement um, that, that ran up into, you know, like the what do you call it? The populist movement and all that kind of stuff. Um, that'd, that'd be one side of it. But I know that one of the things that we wanted to focus on was kind of like the South um, because we're, we're trying to, you know, get some kind of insight into the character of, of, you know, why the South is the way it is today. So is it, is it possible that you could like speak to that um, era and kind of like characterize it in like how it's relevant to Southern politics and especially Southern like radical politics and socialist politics. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Yeah. So, so let me sort of start backwards on that. Um, if you're, if you're talking about the South, in our own time, I mean, and, and people debate if that's still a meaningful category. Um, I mean, there's there's no doubt in U.S. history there were distinct regions like a north, a south, a west, this kind of thing. But um, you know, in our own time, is that still with people moving so much with with a national pop culture with a globalized economy? Um, is it still meaningful to talk about a, a you know? distinct region. But anyway, let's just sort of table that and assume that there is still a thing called the South. Um, what you have in the South today is something that um, you know, is, is uh, has not existed for a lot of the South's recent history, and that would be competitive two-party politics. Um, so George offers a good example of that um, with the 2018 uh, state elections. Um, if you were to go back to, you know, 1900 or 1930 or 1960, it's one-party politics. So there's there's really no political competition. There's no other organ. I mean, the Democratic Party is really the only organized political vehicle. 
And so um, the possibility through the official channels of mobilizing other other political visions it's not even on, it's not even on the table. Um, obviously, this, this goes hand in hand with people being deprived of their of their voting rights, even though the voting rights are there on paper. Functionally, they don't have their voting rights. Um, and so, in today's South, it's yeah, it's um, something that's historically atypical, and that is competitive two party politics. Um, but just how uh, you know whether or not that represents truly um, substantial comp political competition is probably another question. So just because you have two parties competing and the competition is real, um, and on some issues, obviously, they, they are different. On, on really basic, you know, on some kind of, you know, fundamental issues, um, I'm not sure, well, I would say some of the fundamental issues are not even on the political table. And so the level of, of debate and um, difference is limited. If you go back in time, the, the, the kind of closest analogy would be, um, in terms of just sort of official politics, would be the 1890s. And so there's a very, you know, again, George is an example of this. Um, there's a there's a very vibrant third party called the People's Party or Populists, and um, they're mobilizing what what you know the best label would be small producers, which you know as a class doesn't really exist today at least in our society, but but people that um, we're mainly thinking of farmers, um, but but are whose income is based on what they produce. Whereas most of us, our income is based on the labor that we sold in the labor market, this kind of thing, you know. Um, and, and they're an interracial party, and this is the 1890s. So again, they're, they're another example of um, radical politics. It, the party's most radical in the South. And um, just like with Reconstruction, the party meets with um, violent terrorism. Um, it's not the Klan, it's basically just the Democratic Party it's and, and, and Knight Riders. Um, but uh, they're very directly dealing with economic issues. So, so um, debt and um, deflation are the, are the most basic things. Um, anyway, uh, that party, through, through violence, through fraud in, in elections and through propaganda is ultimately defeated. Some of its, many of its supporters are disfranchised um, with, with some new laws that are new, new, new regulations of voting that come along. Others lose hope. The party starts to crumble. By 1900, it barely exists anymore. Um, it has its latest heyday up in North Carolina, but by 1900, it's basically gone. So from 1900 into the civil rights era, there's really just kind of one, there's really one party in town. It's the Democratic Party. Um, now there are in the, in the 30s especially some very, um, you know, robust radical movements in the South. They're homegrown in the South, um, a little bit less in Georgia, but in Alabama there's a sharecroppers union that's communist. Like it's affiliated with the national, I mean, the CPUSA. 
If you get over to Arkansas, there's a Southern Tenant Farmers Union. Um, if you get down to Louisiana, Huey Long, who's a complex figure, um, has the Share Our Wealth movement. Uh, all these are in the 1930s. And um, then if you go to, actually, this would exist a little bit in Georgia, but if you go to the centers of the textile industry, which is um, kind of an arc that runs sort of Augusta up in northeast Georgia up to days like I-85 and in North Carolina, that's, that's where all the textile mills were. Um, the CIO has an Operation Dixie that's very determined, or you know, is is based on the premise that um, these textile workers know they're being exploited. They live in concentrated places like Harrisburg here in Augusta, and they're ripe for organizing. So if we can just get in there and organize, they'll be receptive. Um, that meets with considerable violence. But but these are these are Southern labor movements that. Um, are much more radical than the official politics of the 30s, um, certainly in southern states or, or even nationally. At least, you know, sort of in my sense of things, in our own time, we don't have an equivalent like that. And so, uh, obviously, I, I think the two major parties we have do represent difference. It's not just shadow boxing; like they, they do represent difference. But there's some issue, you know, there, there's some, um, I'll say, deeper issues that are just off the political table. They're not up for discussion. And so because they're not up for discussion, the existing order just sort of trucks along as is. And I think we don't have an equivalent today of um, these you know, besieged but uh, important um, radical movements that are they're originating in the south they're, they're, you know here and there you can find kind of traces and stirrings but but you know not not like we would have seen in, in the 30s that answer kind of went all over the place um i don't know if we could we can touch on other things on that well there there's definitely a lot to chew on there um you 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 kind of rattled off like a, a lot of organizations uh, and a lot of activity. So, I mean, I think it's clear that this era had like a lot going on. And like you said, we really don't have a com like a, a modern analog. So then my question in response to that would be, where did it, where did, what were the material conditions that gave rise to uh, them having the, their analogs that they're, they're actually existing uh, movements at the time, like why do we? Why do they have it and we don't? Yeah, no, it's like, right. What are we missing that they sure, have? Sure. Where did it come from? I mean, I guess. let me toss out a couple things, and and it, these are hunches, um, but but I'll toss them out. I think one thing is, um, the, the well, the much greater face to face sociability of people living in the thirties. So like tenant farmers who lived in pretty close proximity to each other. Um, this is back when the countryside was very densely populated. So like very, very different than today. Today you take a country drive and you're like, where is everybody? <laughs> it's just, I see a lot of trees. But I mean, in the 30s, tons of people lived out in the countryside. And so there, there is a yeah face-to-face -face sociability that we've lost. Um, that I think increases the possibilities for 
being organized, making connections, sustaining things over time. I think it's harder when um, people are not seeing each other face to face, when their exchanges are virtual, and, and I think that that weakens um, a sense of cohesion. So I think that I think that's one thing. I think the other thing I'd say, and again, these are hunches, would be a um, a uh, grassroots culture or cultures among um, those who were who are outside the centers of power. It gives them their own cues and gives them their own and can can be the seed for an alternate vision. Um, and at least if you're talking about this, the working class in the South, whether rural or or urban, like the the textile workers, you're you know you don't want to overstate this, but basically you're talking about Christianity and, and their own um, Christian communities, um, where they're tapping into the. Uh, they're more subversive and radical elements in Christianity. And in that, in that, they're finding a vision that challenges the way things are and inspires them to, to hope that, that things could be different. I think if you move to today, um, I, I, you know, I, well, I, I don't think, well, I think for, for significant numbers of people outside centers of power, they don't have a, a coherent cultural message that's, that's offering them an alternative. And so there's an interesting, I mean, you know, they're, this is kind of anecdotal, but um, an interesting book that came out, I think just last year, last year or two, called Deaths of Despair. Um, it's by these two economists, and uh, it's looking at how um, the USA is the only you know, in, industrialized or post-industrialized society where for three years in a row, you know, prior to the time they wrote the book, uh, average life, life expectancy, expectancy was actually declining. So like every other nation, it's increasing. We've assumed it was increasing. It's been declining in the USA. It's especially declining among working class white people. Um, and so these authors look at, you know, what's going on there, and they call this deaths of despair. And so people that... Um, face a, um, you know, a deindustrialized, low-wage service economy without the, the um, you know, robust labor unions of the, of the industrial era, um, but also without a, you know, resounding and strong cultural message that offers them a different vision. And so, um, you know, as the authors argue, like they, they sink into despair and there there's, you know, high rates of, of death through essentially alcoholism, drug abuse, suicide. Um, I mean, it's not a cheery story at all. I think it speaks to um, people not seeing how things could be different and not hearing other messages. And so, um, you know, if if the... You know, if the dominant message is this glorification of, um, you know, especially like tech entrepreneurs and, and uh, you know, sort of capitalist realism. 
Yeah. That's what I wanted yeah. to get into, actually. Yeah. It, if yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but when you said there's no, like, th there's no um, like central message, because like you said the two things. So, so I was like going off your two hunches. I wrote notes okay. <laughs> and I, I wrote that whole face-to-face -face social ability thing in the 30s versus what we have now, which is like more social media and virtual. It's funny because when when I started organizing, I was like, oh, this should be easy because I can like message people really quickly. I can do a Facebook ad. I can, you can get people together, but when it comes to yeah. getting people together in person, I can say as an organizer, it's nearly impossible. It's All hard. Right? It's hard. And, right. and so, um, and, and the second thing you said, uh, the second kind of hunch about like how grassroots culture among those who were outside of power was like, it, it was it was more, I guess, not even more accessible. It was more of an idea. I do think there's a central message. And the only central message we have, especially with the advent of, I mean, obviously in the 30s, there was movies and a little bit of television, but not mm -hmm. as much as we have today. And then just, you know, media and social media. The only thing we have is this like false hope through capital. So what I noticed, right. at least in the communities I'm a part of, so like Black communities, queer communities, there's a lot of people across the political spectrum who they're like, well, I'm just gonna work and grind and get two or three jobs and a side hustle and then I'm gonna be rich. And then I'm gonna be like a millionaire. And what's really happens is they just work their whole life and they're in debt. Like it's it's not, it doesn't really go off for everybody that same way. Right. So right. I do think there is a central message but the only message we have is again, this like kind of false hope through capital because it's, there's no likelihood of every American working really hard and becoming a millionaire or a billionaire. It's just not, it's, it's not going to happen. Right. Um, right. And we've probably, it's, you know, we've probably in hours probably worked enough to deserve a million dollars by the time we're like in our twenties and thirties for the average able-bodied working person. But that doesn't mean that's what we're actually being you know, paid. And so I think, I think a, a big part of that, this, you know, the second thing you said was probably because, um, there was like, I think if you're in a bigger community and it's rural and say it's even in the fifties, for example. So I'll again, use my Nana as an example and they have like a little TV, but the only thing that's on there is like, I don't know, green acres and the Beverly Hillbillies and, and, you know, like all those really, you know, the, whatever the show where the, the car was a generally, uh, I don't remember, I don't know. And Dallas and all you have the country shows, but like these people are so far out of your mind. It's so fictional. It's so obviously fictional. Something you can't wrap your head around. I don't think my Nana ever had the thought of when I grew up, I'm going to be a millionaire. I think she had the thought of like, right. well, cause she was a maid and then a custodian. So she's like, I'm just going to work and I want to work enough to support my family. And a lot of people in her same age bracket. So, you know, 1940s and fifties or born then they kind of like had that. But I think progressively what I've been seeing with people who are younger. So my age, so millennial and Gen Z is either I hate working. I hate capitalism, or I have to work to become a millionaire because they're like, I right. can't. And, and it's, it's weird because they think it's possible. <laughs> and you know, right. I don't, I don't think so, but I didn't want to interrupt if you had other hunches. Um, but I remember you said two, so I was writing it down and I wanted to really get that out oh, because are, I do think yeah, that, yep. you know, that is the message. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I guess just by, um, sort of analogy of the, to, um, the past, I, I just meant that, I think if you go back to the thirties, certainly there were some, there were dominant messages out there. So like in the Jim Crow culture, for example, that, that your grandmother would have come of age in, 
um, you know, the dominant message of the Jim Crow culture was that she was a second class human being, right? Not just second class citizen, but second class human being. But I think the the possibility of a um, counterculture or alternate culture or cultures of that era was greater where, you know, at the grassroots level, people generated their own or participated in um, other another culture or other cultures that gave them very different a diff very different sense of who they were a very different vision of life and yeah i think in the present um i mean here's one statistic that's to me is mind-blowing and i learned this from my um, goddaughter if you were if it, let's let's say you took a job in the year 1492 and let's say you had a very long life like really really long um, and you were paid $5,000 a day every day starting in 1492, you still would not be a billionaire today, right? So you can pull out your phone, get the calculator, do the math on this. You'd be, you, you know, a multimillionaire, but you would not actually not be a billionaire. So we're talking about an insane amount of wealth, um, that even to, you know, a billionaire has, but in our society, I don't hear much, um, critique of that. that that like no one <laughs> can justly and rightfully have acquired that much wealth i don't hear that being said a whole lot um Man. certainly like a <laughs> go ahead all i said was amen <laughs> yeah yeah i mean certainly like you know someone like a bernie sanders he, he was talking about millionaires and billionaires and 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 elizabeth warren um, you know, obviously they weren't the, the Democratic Party's nominees. So, I mean, th there is some critique there, but but I think broadly in the culture, uh, yeah, th th there's there's not suspicion of of an of immense wealth. If if anything, there's admiration, awe, and if I just work really hard, I I can, of course you know I could get that too. Like like factually, I mean. Mathematically, you, that that can't be. There's but, a glorification um, of it, really, right? Like absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it's also as if I mean, and I think this is a little bit different um, than earlier eras in our history. I mean, only a little bit. I wouldn't overstate it, but it's like these corporations, multinational corporations, get reduced to one person. And so by individualizing them, you make them seem less like these powerful corporations that answer to their shareholders and just like this one kind of creative genius that, oh, my God, like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and, oh, my, oh my, you know, Bill Gates, oh, my God, like these are just like such wizard, you know, wizards of, of economics. And by, by personalizing it like that, you, you think it make it even harder to... Um, critique the basic structures that, that they're beneficiaries of. Um, yeah, and, and, and to add to your point about, you know, millennials taking three jobs and, and working so hard, I think kind of hand in hand with resignation would just be exhaustion, right? So <laughs> if people are working three jobs, they don't have time to rebel. I mean, they're, they're, or they don't have the energy to rebel. Um, it, the energy they have goes into labor and they're just exhausted. Um, and so the, you know, 
I don't think it's that hard to see that those in power are happy to have a exhausted working class, right? Um, the possibility of being challenged is, is much less when people are just tired. Well, speaking to the, like, the exhaustion from being overworked, uh, I feel like, well, we know, like, for example, like, historically, uh, black people have been relegated disproportionately to, like, the reserve army of labor for capital, right? They've, they've been disproportionately among the unemployed, what, you know, if you really want to get Marxist analysis, be very often they would be uh, lumpen proletariat, you know? Um, and a lot of them have just been as a consequence, just like literally just like funneled into the prisons, you know, and, um, marginalized and ignored. And I mean, obviously we could talk about like, you know, Malcolm X and the Panthers and the kind of like radical, you know, uh, organizing that's going on in the community. Um, but I, I mean, I guess, I guess my question would be like, I mean, they're, they're a microcosm of kind of this like overworked thing. And I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to suggest is that maybe there could be other things besides just being overworked. Like being in prison, obviously, is going to make it really hard yeah, to organize. Sure. You sure. know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, t yeah, I mean, two things I would say on that and in, you know, the book I was referencing earlier, it, it really is explicitly look, explicitly looking at the white working class. Um, but I think, uh, I mean, this is kind of, con well, it needs to be said with nuance so, so the, the wrong message doesn't come out. But um, I think some of the despair of the, the, the white working class you know, and this could be even at a, a very subconscious level. It doesn't have to be conscious. Uh, they assume that their whiteness would yield benefits for them, economic benefits. And in a lot of American history, like that assumption was was factual uh, or had had an evidentiary basis. But um, that's not automatically true anymore. And so they experience this this. Um, gap between expectation or presumption like well of, of course uh and, and then the reality of of like material economic reality of, of their life whereas i would say for um if we just were to isolate the like the black working class um they never had the presumption that their race was going to yield them benefits in this society if anything there was the wisdom that um, you know, uh, the society wasn't set up that way, right? Um, and so, the, you know, so the, there's, you know, there's not that racial presumption. Um, but I think, anyway, that that's, I think to, to your point on the table, I mean, two, two things I would isolate. One would be, um, and I think the best work done on this is the Equal Justice Initiative based out of Montgomery, uh, Alabama. There again, another... You know, Southern-based organization doing excellent work, um, and you know you can you could read Brian Stevenson's memoir Just Mercy that really gets at this. But the um, dramatic 
the huge incarcerated population we have in the USA today, we haven't always had as a nation. It really originates in the early 70s. And, and just a quick asterisk on that, not that further back in the Jim Crow era, the uh, incarceration system didn't racially profile people. Obviously, obviously it did, but but the, the large number of incarcerated people that we have in the USA today is, is really originates in the early 70s. And that's what call, Michelle Alexander, um, legal scholar, calls the new Jim Crow. So it's the technique of, of racial control, just like the old Jim Crow was, was as well. Um, and so, you know, it was in the early 70s that um, the Nixon administration announces a war on drugs. Okay. Think about the 60s and drugs and who comes in your mind's eye. It would be white hippies, right? <laughs> Um, I think most of us, that would, that would be kind of the middle image. Who's actually getting incarcerated in the war on drugs? It's not white hippies. They're not getting incarcerated. It's it's um, overwhelmingly black people and black men that are getting incarcerated. And so, again, that that's that's a, um, a technique of racial control in our own time that, that yet yeah, very much damages and, 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 and um, does, does damage people even after the time of their incarceration, obviously. Uh, the other thing there I'd say is, and again, this is this is probably a little bit more of a hunch than, than a firm claim, but um, I think with uh, with black churches, and again, this has to be so with nuance, but I think with black churches, um, there is... Well, and again, the civil rights movement would offer a classic example of this, but, but with black churches, um, they have been the, a key uh, social space and cultural space that um, gave black Americans a very different vision of themselves than the larger society was giving them. And, and um, this is my hunch, is that higher numbers of the black working class would be connected to churches in our own time than of the white work than of the white working class and so the the odds that they're hearing a message and believing a message that um presents a different vision than the large society would be greater i would say again these this you know, I, I'm, I'm, that's those are hunches that's anecdotal but but i think there's there's some um truth to that Okay, um, this is this is kind of related to some of the stuff we've been talking about, but it's it's a little different too. Um, from uh, my notes from the class that I had with you, I have some stats written down that you that you told us. I don't know if I wrote these down right, so you know, my bad. It's okay. Your grades, the been, your grades been turned down, um, so we're good. But it's yeah, our grades <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so in eighteen in eighteen eighty. 49% of labor worked in agriculture and 72% of the population was living in rural areas. Um, by 1930, about 50 years later, only 21% worked in agriculture and now 22% work specifically in manufacturing, which you said was the largest um, single uh, unit of labor. And it was the first time that it had surpassed yeah. agriculture. And then, and you go on to say that in 1970, it was 27.4% that worked in manufacturing. 
Um, but then by 1980, it had fell back to 22%. Um, and so I actually have a, a little, I'm just going to read one paragraph of it. This, this whole section is really good. This is from Endnotes Volume 4. It says, almost as soon as the old regime was cleared away, and this is kind of talking about like, it, the the angle here is kind of talking about like the failures of our attempts to do labor organizing. It says almost as soon as the old regime was cleared away, the semi-skilled working class stopped growing, and then it went into an unarrested decline. At first, it did so only relative to the total workforce, but then in the eight nineteen eighties and nineties, and nearly every and in nearly every high income country, it declined absolutely. As a result, the industrial workers never made up more than, at most, 40 to 45 percent of the total workforce. And so I guess what, what I think is really significant about that is I don't know enough about the, the labor organizing of socialists in the past to really speak any kind of definitively way to this. But I do know that culturally speaking in the U.S., there's this tendency to think that labor unions are for industrial work, mm -hmm. right? And and that's mainly like, oh, oh, it, it, like we associate, we just associate union work with like wearing a hard hat. And um, and I'm being very, you know, crass and brazen and and, and sloppy about what I'm saying here, but like I I think that people understand what I'm get what I'm hinting at. Um, but like now, if I have a, I have one more stat to throw at you. I mean, if I Google percentage of workers of U.S. workers in service economy, I get seventy eight point seventy four percent. And I've heard other estimates as high as like eighty three percent as like we have a we have a service economy workforce now. And I remember one other thing that you said in class, at least I have a note on it. I don't know if you actually said it, which is what I wrote down, is <laughs> uh, that. That this that one of the one of the defining features of the service economy was that it has quote anti union uh, techniques, um, and it got me thinking like, well, okay, I think that the you know the the United Mine Workers and all of them and Blair Mountain and all that they kind of ran into some anti union sure. techniques as well. Mm -hmm. I it seemed like, and so what is so effective about the modern either, either I mean, this question go two ways. I don't know what the answer is. Is it that the modern anti-union techniques were just so effective and the socialists weren't able to organize it? Or were we too pig-headed and sluggish and just fixated on trying to in unionize like industrial labor when, you know, that ship had sailed and we were just too slow to adapt? Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah, um, good and complex question. Um, So let, let's back up for just a little bit and uh, yeah, the, the, big, the biggest, well, okay, let's go back to sort of the, the, the pre-1930s era. I think a key reason why you don't see, well, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, that's when you get this association of unions with like industrial labor. And that's because even though a lot of the, Work, labor forces working in agriculture, they're, again, the, the category would be small producers. So they're not really working for someone, they're working for themselves. So even a tenant or sharecropper, they're renting someone else's land, but I mean, they don't have a direct like boss or manager. 
uh, they're, they're self-employed, right? Even if they're not land-owning. Um, and so what they, what they, you know, the income they derive is based on the crop they produce, they're, you know, that the household produces. And then they settle the, the sharecropping or, or tenant arrangement. Whereas with, with um, the first of the labor unions, you have people who are working directly for someone else um, and working for wages. And so that, you know, it's just sort of apples and oranges, I guess, when, when, when um, you know, when, when labor unions originally, I mean, in the sense that we would recognize them, originated in, in, in U.S. history. But then if we like fast forward to um, the late 20th century with the, with the you know, peak in the, in the, in the, in the um, 60s into the early 70s, and then a steady decline the 50 years since then of industrialized labor and the shift to a, you know, labor becoming more and more um, in the service sector. I think there are a number of factors. I don't think there's any one thing that's, that's undercutting it. Um, I mean, one is is um, just sort of labor. Labor in general has less uh, bargaining power and kind of ground to stand on because of globalization and digital techniques of management and the the easy the the the. I mean, so like you know. Let's go back to your United Mine Workers. It's like the coal's under the ground in this particular area. It's like that's where the, I mean, you can't move the the coal mine, right? So you're, you know, the workers are there. That's where the the the, the coal is getting excavated. That's that's not movable, and you need people there. And so labor has, in that sense, like more, like capital needs labor. But if we're talking today about, say, an Amazon warehouse. Um, so let's say that the workers at the Amazon, new Amazon warehouse out in Columbia County, let's say they start getting organized and, and you know, um, Amazon can be like, all right, well, you know, we invest a lot of money into this. We crunch the numbers and, you know, to hell with this location. We'll sell it. It's office space. Somebody else will buy it. And we'll just go to some other place where, where people need, you know, there's a demand for Amazon jobs. I mean, la labor has less... Um, because of the movability of things, um, it, it's, it, you know, labor has bring, brings less, it, it's harder, it has less to bargain with. The second thing, I, I, you know, with just clarification with um, anti-union techniques. So up through the, up into the 30s, the anti-union techniques were violence, going back to our, you know, our earlier theme about reconstruction. So employers would hire, um, security agencies and sometimes get the local um, militia, sometimes even get federal troops to defeat labor when it challenged, um, when it posed a challenge. And so that, that was the most basic anti-union technique of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Coming out of the 30s with the um, Fair Labor Standards Act, well, initially the, the anyway, a couple of laws in the 30s, but kind of solidify with the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, and actually the, the National um, Labor Relations Act, both those kind of in tandem. Employers can't do that. Like that, that is illegal. Those laws remain on the books. And so you don't, you just don't, and when it comes to, to um, 
industrial or, or service work, you don't see Walmart hiring um, private security companies to actively attack and threaten its workers who are thinking about joining union, that kind of thing. Like that, that just can't legally happen today. And so in that sense, there is some protection and that's not meaningless. Um, but then, you know, these are savvy companies. So, I mean, they use these use other techniques like, well, okay. You know, we heard that you were attending these meetings. Like, you know, this, this other people waiting to take this job if you don't want it. Um, and, and that's, you know, again, like that goes back to labor has less to bargain with. And there are other people that will, will take the job if you don't want it. So, um, yeah, I mean, th those are some of the factors. I don't necessarily know that. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily know that. The association of, of unions with industrial workers whether just the cultural association or unions themselves and their focus on that. I don't know that necessarily that that, you know, has, has directly hindered, um, like all the eggs being put in that basket has hindered, uh, organizing work among service workers. I mean, and maybe the other thing to say is, um, I mean, a lot of service work is part-time. A lot of it is, uh, you know, younger people who are, um, you know, not heads of household. Whereas if you go back to the kind of classic industrial labor unions, you know, they're, they're highly gendered. And it's on this assumption that there's a male, a male head of household whose wage ought to be able to support the household, that kind of thing. So I mean, it's, it's, it's a problem. I mean, it's problematic. It's based on this model of domesticity and all that. But, but, um, you know, you're not generally like, yes, Mother Jones marches, organizes textile mill workers who are kids to march to around Wall Street and up to the president's mansion. So, yes. But generally speaking, who is in the UMW and, and um, the, I mean, you know, pick your union. You're talking about you know male heads of household like adult men and again a lot of the workers in the service economy are are not i mean that's not the case and so um you know organizing a you know 20 hour a week um 18 year old restaurant worker who this is something that you know part of what part of the sustaining their household and a part-time job for them is just sort of like that that also makes it harder um yeah essentially there's little motivation on their end since they're not they might not be the ones who are their like primary right. caretaker or they they're in collaboration with their family helping with like supporting and and that that honestly to me that makes a lot of sense and another thing i think um, about service work, which is really hard, I would think, to organize, is that you said there's a lot of like part-time shifts, but even the full-time people, it, they, like in service work, I've, I've done like retail and I've done like food and I've done grocery store work. You're so like away yeah. from each other. Like yeah. the closest 
kind of community I had was when I worked in yeah. an office job. And that was, it was, it wasn't even that like communal, but like, at least I was right. next to people like in a service job, you don't have time to stop and like say more than, Hey, a couple of words. So it's, I think it's probably a little bit harder to get people to organize. Cause they like, yeah, you're my coworker, but you don't really have um, those connections. Um, but I mean, there's an episode we're going to have this coming out too soon it's a two-parter about the person who uh got like who helped and like kind of led the um union effort for the, the local starbucks yeah, okay. here in augusta yeah. that's um voted so they're they're they, they it happens but i do think as andy said it's like maybe there was like the fact that there's this shift from like um you know this the traditional work that we thought of like industrial work and you know coal mining and like construction work and these kind of like male head of household figures and those type right. of jobs to um to like service jobs being like the biggest thing and we saw that during like you know a lot of like 2020 and now um and another thing i wanted to say too when you said that like the pay was essentially for like the you know again very gendered and we don't we won't care about gender here on this podcast but like the the kind of concept that like uh this like okay the husband's gonna make enough for the woman to stay home so she can work and right. blah 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 but the wages to to me they still kind of reflect that if you see like a full-time job now they still reflect like okay this should be enough right. for you but no actually it, it, it reflects like one person a one person household type job and it's like there, a lot of people can't stay home. Like people don't really stay home, even if they, you know, just have a new child or something, they can't really afford to stay home. So I think, you know, that goes into it too. It's like, there's this, I mean, our culture is just so work. It's, it's, it's so filled yeah. with work that I, I don't really blame like people when we're trying to help organize, if it's, whether that be like a tenant union for uh, uh, apartments or whether that be like helping people unionize for their jobs or organizing for a rally of something poor, like it, it makes sense that people are yeah. worn down because it's kind of like hard to find time to do it. And you said exhaustion and resignation together. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this to Andy, but uh, after this, I do want to kind of get to like uh, people's concepts of the South. Cause I got a lot to say and a couple of questions. Yeah, certainly, to ask. Certainly. Um, if I can add just one thing, I, I think this is uh, an interesting paradox is if you're if you're thinking about the um oh, so the the dominant sort of mm, this gets kind of intangible but the dominant sort of self-conception in the early 20th century and maybe up yeah early 20th century it's it's um you know, the, the labor that you do defines your class status. And so people are thinking of themselves primarily in a productive, in, in a sense of their productivity and their, their place in that. Whereas um, in the mid 20th century, and then I would say, you know, with, with going on into our own time, there's a shift in, in, in to try to get people to see themselves as consumers. And so your your class position or class status is, is gets defined by what you can buy, by what you can consume. So you could be working on a Ford uh, assembly line, but so in that sense, you're 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 your working class, you're an industrial worker, but but your your wage can get you a you can buy a home of your own. So in that sense, you are you have bought middle class status, and I think that continues in the present. And the the paradox would be that you know. 
you got people working three jobs, so their their you know work determines a lot of their time. But um, my hunch is they they if you just sample people, they're thinking more of the stuff that they can um, buy with with you know the wages they've earned, as opposed to their their productive labor and and. Um, you know, the pop culture, the commercial culture we're in feeds on that. Um, anyway, that's, 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 that's intangible, but I do think that's a shift in our, in our own time. I definitely agree with that. Cause like, what's really important. <laughs> I don't know if you uh, saw the craze online when this happened, but there's this craze about like having an air fryer. And it was like, if you don't have an air fryer, that's like being poor. If you don't have an air fryer, that's like having a white refrigerator. If you don't have, it was like this big thing. And, you know, it's really weird because it's like the, the air fryers ranged from anywhere between like 30 to like $120. And people were like bending out of shape so they could make sure they told their friends that they had air fryers. And like there's always something like that every every day on like social media of like you have to have this thing or whatever and it's really interesting because i think there's a lot of people who they might have two jobs and then one of their their side hustle entrepreneurial girl boss businesses and they don't consider themselves working class even though they work so much like they like they work 60 hours a week or 40 hours 50 you know whatever and they're working so much and uh and it used to like you said it used to be kind of like for example, for my Nana, who she, she was a maid, then she was a custodian and janitor. It was just like, well, she just was working class, period, because that's what she did. Like that, because that's the yeah. job she had. But now, like you said, like, say someone starts their own cleaning business and they do deep cleaning an organization and they market themselves really well and they make $100,000. So they're not just a yeah. cleaning lady right. then. You know right. what I mean? So. This um, there is a lot of complexities to it, and I feel like we could totally do an episode on like on that. Yeah. And maybe we should. Um, I I do want to get to this next part, which is kind of like our our concepts of the South, and I have a lot of things in here, so I'm a I'm gonna read a little bit about my thoughts, and then I I might have some questions come up, <laughs> but essentially, like for me, I've always like as a Southerner been really confused, and there's something you said in the podcast about like people some people not feeling like that like that's a big thing because of like regions becoming kind of really blurred and like um pop culture being national and everything like that but as a kid i know it was super important to me that i was like that i told people i was from the south like oh, i'm from atlanta and my my nana's from this part of you know middle of georgia and rural georgia and it was super important to me and um i still feel like it's important to me and i and i and I see, like, for example, I know there's a group um, the called, I think they're called Redneck Rebellion, and they're like a leftist group and Southern group. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. And, and, and for me, I've always thought of, like, my Southern identity is a good thing. However, um, as a Black person and encountering friends who are from the North or they spent a lot of their life in the North or the West, they have this concept that the South is just the, the most racist, the most, like, homophobic, <laughs> queerphobic place in the world. And it's really weird because when I go, for example, visit where my husband lives, um, they have more Confederate flags than I've seen in a lot of places and all mm-hmm. throughout Georgia. And they're near mm-hmm. the Canadian border. They're up there. And so 
that that's been a weird part for me. And another thing I think I wanted to mention is that there's this kind of idea from a lot of people I've talked to from the North and West that like, because slavery, well, I mean, it slavery affected everyone, obviously, but like, they'll be like, well, you know, we had some abolitionists up here or we fought for the union. And it's just like, yeah, but where you live right now, there's no black people, no matter how progressive you're saying that your area is. And there's a lot of places in the Northeast and West that are very outwardly progressive, like they support rights of all people. But these particular cities, they might not have like anyone black or queer in that in them. So I'm like, I wonder why that is, you know, if you're all white, not saying that, you know, because homogenous, like homogenous places that just happen sometimes. It, do, it just, just does happen sometimes. But it is kind of bizarre when a place like prides itself on not being like this certain way when like, it's like you don't even interact right. with black people. Right. So maybe you don't get the chance to actively mm -hmm. be racist. And um the very last thing I want to talk about, um, kind of going back to the, the first thing I was talking about, about that group, like is reclaiming Southern identity. How do you feel about that? And how can we do that? And how can we use that as, as organizers, as people? Because for me, um, again, I mean, I tell everybody I'm from Atlanta, that must just be a city mm -hmm. thing. I don't know, I'm probably annoying with it, but it's really important to me to kind of like present this image of the South. Like my, my Nana and her uh, family, um, they famously call themselves black rednecks all the time because they were from the country, you know, all dirt roads. And um, it's like I, something that I feel like is important, but I also feel like it's fizzling out. And at the same time, the parts that we do have that we see in media or whatever, they're they usually show either a really bad part, a really mm -hmm. dumb part, or this like kind of false idea of like racial harmony. So um, that's not really a question. That was my spiel, but I wanted to know if you or Andy had any like questions or anything to add on. Yeah, on no, that. I, th I think all of that's great. Um, if I can make a few comments on that, Andy, if that's. Yeah, I, well, I just want to say one, one little yeah. tiny thing. I think the org you're talking about is Redneck Revolt. Right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. I'm sorry. I don't know yeah. what I said. I, would, I, I think you said revolution. It's not a huge deal. I was, I, I was in their org for a while, so yeah, they're kind of a gun club. Okay. But yeah, that's all I had to say. But yeah, I, I, no, I think all that's very interesting. Um, I think, well, one, there's been this, uh, <clears throat> it was never factually true, but you could find this out there repeatedly is this assumption that the South means white people. So, so think about like, well, you know, in the Civil War, the South fought, you know, it's like, well, wait, I mean, like, you know, um, most of the nation's black population lived in the South, uh, you know, in, in 1860. So, you know, it, it's not factually true, but that has sometimes um, been unhelpful in thinking about the South, it's just the sense that the South or Southerners means white white folks, which you can you know. And and another thing I think is um, the idea that there is a South has been of a lot of usefulness to white Americans who want to believe that their nation is basically innocent and 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 good and does the right thing and doesn't have. Um, you know, deep injustice. And so if we can say, you know, if we can say, well, you know, the USA stands for this, da, 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 asterisk. Now there's a place down there called the South. 
it's not it's not really America. It's just it's kind of different, and it's racist and it's violent and it's backward. Da, da, da. That functions to absolve the larger nation um, because it's it's uh, it's imaginatively pushing all of these um, social injustices into this region that's sort of an, an aberration from the larger, like, you know, white America. So, I mean, the, 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 um, yeah, I mean, anyway, the, the idea of a South is that a lot of utility to people who don't see themselves as living in that South. Um, and it's the concept of like, Oh, that was those white people yeah, who did that. Exactly, that was them. Exactly. Yeah. But to the extent that that, like that is believed it, it, um, well, you know, it, it feeds this illusion that, well, we don't have racism in Minneapolis. We're just like, we're, we vote Democrat. We're, we're, we're good white liberals up here. Um, and, and it's like, you know, that, that's all. As if, if you vote Democrat, I, I know, somehow I know, not racist. Right, I know. Yeah. And so, I mean, like that, that's always been an illusion, but it feeds that illusion and it, it, it um, erases black people from being part of the South. So it's like, again, for most of U.S. history, most African-Americans have lived in the South. Um, if you get to the mid 20th century, there's a movement, significant movement out of the South. Since the 70s, um, more black people have been returning to the South than, than leaving it, um, making for, you know, like a place like modern Atlanta. And so, you know, however you look at U.S. history, and again, mo you know, um, you know, black uh, African-Americans have very uh, extensive and compelling reasons to claim the South as their own. But once, once we acknowledge that, then we, then we're, um, we're thinking more with greater complexity uh, and depth about what we mean when we say the South. So um, I think that gets into you know, you, you know, you saying that it's it's you know that's been a conscious part of your identity, you know, coming of age. Um, the inflections that has have to be more complicated and have greater depth than what's you know either the the imaginary South of white Americans who don't live in that imaginary you know who don't live there that as they imagine it, or than the um, kind of cliched stuff you can get from even nowadays like chambers of commerce and, and you know tourism that packages this. Um, you know, fantasy land, white South that, that never really existed anyway. But, but, you know, um, yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of works, um, I can think of, of, uh, with, um, you know, some memoir, some poetry, um, some, some just kind of prose essay of, um, Black Southerners, you know, wrestling with, um, you know, what it, I mean, with, with their, with the Southern identity that's, that's, um, anyway, I uh, could send you the list later on, but, but, um, yeah.
Yeah, I mean, that would be really great. Uh, I Something comes to my mind, right? Because I think there's a lot of, um, in 2019 and 2020, a lot of people like change their names and stuff. And I say like, you know, um, for example, I think I think Dolly Parton, she had a, like a ride that was called like Dixie yeah. World or something. She changed the name because she was like, oh, I didn't know I was offending people. And then famously, the, the group Lady Antebellum, they changed their name to Lady yeah. A. And we here in Augusta, there's a park in Evans, Georgia called Lady Antebellum Park. And they just called it Lady A Park. But there was a, like, I think a, she was a black, like yeah. soul singer, R&B. I don't remember the genre, but <laughs> they right. sued her. And she had her name before Lady Antebellum right. existed. And I was like, oh, this is worse. But with the, the names and stuff, it's, it's, it's interesting because some stuff does bother me. Like, right, you have to cope with a lot of stuff being like a black southerner, or also any a southerner that's very conscious or like consciously anti-racist. Like, for example, they're just streets I, I pass by and they're called plantation, sure. whatever. Right. And it's just kind of right. I cringe a little bit. But there's also some stuff that doesn't bother me, and I feel like it it offends a lot more northern people than it does for me. For example, there's a a, a gospel band my nana loves so much, and I think their name is the Dixie hum yeah. Hummingbirds, yeah. and it's like a, a mm -hmm. black quartet. They're really good. And I, it's just, it's like, I mean, Dixie Humbers, I love looking at them. And it's like, they're like, what? You like, they're, why would they have that in their name? And I'm like, it's, you know, to me, there's certain stuff that I can like kind of pick apart. But I, I think that could be with my upbringing and my multi generational upbringing, really. Um, and you did touch a little bit on like kind of reclaiming. Southern identity, especially like for, for me, I don't know, for black ones, but just Southerners in general, what do you think about like, for example, reclaiming Southern identity in, in efforts to help like organize or, or stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I might have to think about that for a bit. <laughs> um, That's okay. While you mm -hmm. think about it, I have, mm -hmm. I always have jokes. <laughs> I write down jokes yeah. as I'm yeah. <laughs> as I'm listening, and I have two things that I think are kind of funny. First of all, you said um, like the people who like the good white liberals. I can just see we're good like we're good white liberals as a hashtag yeah. on Twitter, <laughs> or, like non-ironically. Yeah. And the second thing I have is the People's Party that existed earlier. I think you said mm -hmm. 1890s right. around right. that time. That sounds like a really cool like socialist nightclub right. and bar. <laughs> The people's party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll be here yeah. all night. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, now we have. To yeah, open. I mean, please, please open it. Uh, we, yeah, um, yeah. No, I guess your question. Um, me personally, I think of the South as such a theater of um, conflict and contention. And because um, I think that's that's um, I mean that that's to to look at the region honestly. Um, you know, yeah, to to yeah to look at the region honestly, I think that's 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 the kind of uh, candid historical. You know, short historical account of it. Um, so, so the idea of building something off a of southern identity, I guess, you know, because I think of the contention and conflict, um, I, I sort of struggle with that some. Um, I do think that the the if there was greater knowledge of 
some of the, well, yeah, of, of movements in the past that we've talked about. So like the Republican Party of Reconstruction, the People's Party of the 1890s, um, some of the, the labor unions of the 30s, like the Sharecroppers Union or Southern Tenant Farmers Union. I think there would be, um, or what well, could be, um, if, if people thought of those when they thought of the South, like people in the region thought of those, that could be an inspiration for um, sort of un, unrealized possibilities, I guess, um, that, you know, here were people right in this very region with its history of conflict and contention who not just imagined, but for a time embodied a, a, a way to be different. I feel like that could be an, an inspiration for, um, for for going forward. That 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 would rest on a you know, this is indisputably southern. Um, I don't know if that answers or speaks to at some level your your question. I think it does. I I also I wonder if you um do you know the are they a band or a rap group? Which would you call them? But you know Outcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Andre yeah. three thousand. Yeah, there. I can't. I don't remember which album this was. I don't know if it was like before, or after Speaker Box, Love Below. But is this album um that has like the flag and it's yeah. in black and white? And I think it's funny because a lot of people who are like reactionary people or conservative people use black right. and white flags right. now which is right. really funny but like they they when they made that flag it was really interesting to me because when i was a kid and i was listening to them and all the stuff i was like they make they're like i'm making i'm saying that i don't like the way things are but i'm also patriotic and i think in a way there's a way for uh, southern activists to say okay we have a troubled past but we're here and we don't like what's going on right now we don't like what's we don't like everything about our past, but we are proud Southerners or whatever. And I, I think, I think it's possible. I think it just it needs to be done tastefully. In in my opinion, with the input of Black yeah, people in the yeah. group, because I've seen a lot of stuff go wild with like white people who are Southerners who maybe they're liberals, maybe they're socialists, maybe they're just generally leftists, and they're and they're great. But then they do something that's like maybe you should have consulted right, the group right. first. Yeah. 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 And I think. One of the ways. Go ahead. I think. Oh, uh, I was. No, you go. <laughs> I, th I you think. First. I think one has to be really careful uh, saying something like this, but I do think that. Um, I mean, I think. I think I believe this that the possibility of a. Uh, of a movement being interracial is greater in the South, which, which on the, again, on the face of it can sound like an absurd claim, but um, there are, pre again, in the examples I mentioned, there are precedents uh, for this, even in areas when you wouldn't think this, this could happen. Uh, that's in no way to discount the um, you know, omnipresent reality of racism in the South and the USA, but um, Anyway, that's that's my hopeful semi conclusion. I was just gonna say that I appreciated that uh, whatever you're characterizing, like what might be useful in the southern identity, it was 
not so much the it's almost like it has nothing to do with the so-called southern identity that's been billed to us as like a national project especially from the confederacy right like that's almost like a total mischaracterization of what this region is right and like you're kind of like emphasizing like the actual history not the the fantastical characterization that is really just a excuse for being a bunch of racist assholes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the real raw history of the South is so much more interesting. It's so much more human than the fossilized, um, you know, just, just, yeah, the, the fossilized, like dripping with Victorian, um, sentimentality stuff that you find on Confederate monuments. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a great. I mean, Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite writers. I draw a lot of inspiration from her, and um, she's got a great story called "A Later Encounter with the Enemy." It's that's it's all about the lost cause, and you've got this old white man who, yeah, he's a, he maybe he was a general, you know. Anyway, we don't know for sure, but he um, appears on stage at these lost cause events, and he's in in. He, you know, he rides the laurels of this sanitized, um, sentimentalized pseudo-history. And then the climactic moment of the story, he has this vision of, like, the real reality of history and all of the, like, horrible things he's seen. And he's so, like, freaked out by it that he has a stroke and dies. <laughs> and it's, again, this is kind of gallows humor. But, but, uh, wow. I mean, it's just well <laughs> worth reading a late encounter with the enemy. But, um, the idea that just, you know, the, there's a, um, yeah, a raw reality that, um, is so much deeper and more powerful than the, the, um, yeah, sentimentalized stuff on the, on the monuments. Yeah, for sure. Just, just, just real quick. Looking um, at the time, I'm gonna need to duck out in about five minutes. So if there's like a, well, I was, I was about to say actually, uh, I don't have any more questions, uh, and this has been a great podcast. And unless he has something else to say, no. All uh, I was gonna do was mention quickly. Wrong. I was gonna mention quickly the the, the monument. Um, if y'all, if if y'all wanna do that really quickly in our last like little time, um. All I was going to mention is for, I mean, those of y'all listening who aren't um, the four friends we have listening to this podcast, uh, in Augusta, there's, in in, in lots of parts of the United States, there's uh, Confederate monuments. Most of them, you can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not the historian, but uh, were erected usually well after, usually in Jim Crow, but some of them sometimes 1890s um, after the Civil War. And in my opinion, just used to incite fear. And there's a very huge one in Augusta that we're trying to get down and I want to read really there's a small quote there's a lot of quotes on each side of it but it this one on the side really bothers me and it it says no nation rose so white and so fair uh, none fell so pure of crime and it's weird because it also on the other side of it says that they won for some reason it says that they won which they didn't obviously um and i just really want to quickly talk about that because right now there's a like task force and there's like there's been a task force for a long time to get rid of this type of stuff but there's um 
kind of talks about getting rid of these monuments in a, in a more concrete way. So I wondered, uh, John, if you had anything to say about that really quick. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I've been involved with, with uh, local efforts really that, um, at least the ones that I got, I've been plugged into um, originated shortly after the um, Charlottesville rally, the alt-right, you know, white, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville. Um, and so the local NAACP chapter took the lead in, in mobilizing a um, major protest against the Confederate monument here. So that, you know, we're talking late summer 2017. Um, but yeah, these, these monuments are ubiquitous. It's the rare county seat uh, in the South that doesn't have one of these. So they're all over the landscape. I've seen, I've seen you know, hundreds of these. And I can tell you that the one here in Augusta is, well, not only is it one of the oldest, so it's 1878, but it is hands down one of the boldest of these monuments. And the, the quote you just read, that's an absurd claim to make about any nation. Like every nation has blood on its hands. So the idea that there are nations that are pure of crimes is, I mean, it's, that's just absurd. But especially to claim that of the Confederacy um, that was premised on or set up to try and sustain racial slavery for posterity. It, it's just a, I mean, it's a doubly absurd claim. Um, and so, you know, a general um, recommendation would be that it go to the cemetery. Um, the more radical recommendation of a friend of mine is that it be dynamited and the rubble from it then be used to pave the foyer of a center for racial justice. Um, but, but in the absence of that, uh, moving it to cemetery sends a, sends a powerful message. So, yeah, yeah and I, mean, I think also um, up until the six, well, really into the 60s, the block that it's on was like the center of Augusta. It was like the most hopping part of Augusta. Times have changed. Augusta's suburbanized. I get all that. Um, but I mean, pick your, your major thoroughfare, Washington Road, Peach Orchard, maybe. Um, and imagine putting a massive monument right in the middle of that. Um, that that's the, you know, the, the, the one on um, Broad Street had that kind of prominence. The trees that are on Broad Street were planted in the 1990s. So for, for decades and decades, over a century, it was impossible to miss the monument. It stood looming up over the Augusta skyline. And you know, aside from the, the nonsense it says about the Confederacy and the claims that you know, when all was said and done, the soldiers kind of won, the, won their glorified fame, this kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the clear message of the monument is white folks are going to be in control here. And here on top, we got a white dude with a gun, right? So the, the, the meaning is lost on no one in terms of uh, the social vision that's embodied in that monument. And um, yeah, and it's, it's got to go. It's, it's, it's long overdue. 
Well, um, that is all. As always, I'm gonna like sign off really quick. And I don't, we don't have a sign off yet. Maybe we'll make like a little jingle. But what I'm gonna tell you is, you probably heard stuff that you loved. You probably heard stuff that you hated. If you want to send stuff to me that you hated, and Andy and our producer Matt, then um, send us an email at the Rotten Core Pod or it's the Rotten Core Podcast at gmail.com. Figure it out. We we'll get it. Just try both, I guess. And um, thank you so much for listening. And, and thank you so much, um, Dr. Hayes, for, for joining us. I like this was this, this was great, amazing. Great. Thank you Certainly. so much. Thanks, thanks very much for having me. And uh, I've enjoyed it. I hope to see you all around.